thanks for pressing play. Behavioral ecologist and world-renowned elephant scientist, Dr. Caitlin O'Connell is back. And she spent more than 30 years studying animals in their natural habitats. And she's taught at places like Stanford and Harvard. And she's got a brand new book out called Wild Rituals, where she explores 10 lessons animals can teach us about connection, community, and our own humanity. And her book comes out at a uh, time in history when, um, you know, I think the human race is dealing with some pretty deep existential questions. And Dr. O'Connell is here to help us deepen our understanding of ourselves by teaching us all about legendary animals. And on this episode, we get into it. And if you love animals, you're going to love Dr. Caitlin O'Connell. We get into all, co- all sorts of cool things, the power of play, why greeting rituals matter so much, uh, the positive and negative power of groups and tribes, how animals grieve and what we can learn from them. Uh, Dr. Caitlin was the first scientist to discover how elephants communicate through the ground. We also get into how females uh, choosing mates affect certain species, including the human species. And she even tells us what it's like when lions mate. I think you're going to love this episode. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and our listeners have made us an award-winning, chart-topping dialogue podcast, and that's because we feature real, unedited conversations with the legendary people who are making our world a very different place. Now, I'd encourage you to check out Lockhead.com. While you're there, uh, subscribe to our new hot, red-hot Uh, newsletter called Category Pirates, the authority on category design. Also, my friends at NetSuite are the world's leading cloud ERP system. NetSuite by Oracle. Visit netsuite.com slash different today and uh, learn how you can build a legendary business or legendary foundation for your legendary business. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, doctor, um, it's great to see you again. How are you? Good. Uh, it's great to see you again. A lot of crazy things have happened since we last spoke. <laughs> <laughs> just just a few things. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, including writing this book. <laughs> Which is so exciting. And actually, in the context of all of the crazy that's been going on, animals really provide human beings comfort in a lot of ways, don't they? They do. And, you know, the reason... I was inspired to write about rituals in in wild animal societies was really just to remind us of how important ritual is in our own lives and and how similar our rituals are to other animals. And um, that's what started this journey. (laughs) Watching two of my favorite elephants greeting with such intense, intense excitement that I thought, oh my gosh, you know, we sometimes take saying hello, just a simple hello for granted. And um, 
yeah, that's what started me down this crazy path. And then, oh my gosh, as I'm finishing, then the pandemic hits and I have to include things about that because there are so many rituals that we can't even engage in if we wanted to, like shaking hands or smiling at each other. We all have to wear masks to keep each other safe. So, you know, we see our eyes. Eyes are very good at smiling and, and it's really, gaze is a very important ritual, but um there's so many things that we're missing by being isolated and it just rings home the whole importance of what I was trying to say without realizing that the pandemic would show us how even more important rituals are to our lives. It, it's amazing. We're talking about this. Uh, I got an email late last night uh, from a buddy of mine who used to live in the area and then moved away. And he had on sort of short notice had to come up and he said he was going to be nearby. Could I, could he swing by? I haven't seen him since before the pandemic and I said, yeah, I'd love to see you, but we're going to be outside. Uh, we need to both wear masks and, you know, I can't hug you. I can't because, you know, my father-in-law is 90 and my mother-in-law is 85 and we're taking this thing very seriously and so forth. And he said, yeah, no, I understand we're taking it seriously too. And sure enough, here's a guy that I consider a brother and I haven't seen him for a very long time. I'm a hugger. And of course, we're not hugging. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's uh, it's really taken a toll on on every generation. Um, you know, school kids being isolated and our seniors being isolated. My parents are uh, in the high eighties, also, and so it's pretty nerve wracking. But hopefully, we'll get through this out the other side and realize how important it is to be with each other in person and to shake hands, to hug. And uh, this has all been a reminder of how difficult, uh, how important these rituals are. And, um, you know, I take examples from many other species. Uh, you know, everyone has an experience with a, with a dog or cat wanting to say hello, especially dogs. They'll never miss an opportunity to greet. In fact, if, if you don't respond to their greeting, they kind of even seem hurt. <laughs> Um, and, and so my first, the first chapter of my book, and there's 10 rituals that I highlight in the book, and I try and go through rituals that are so very basic to us, including play and um, grieving and spoken rituals. Um, but my first chapter starts with greeting. And, uh, you know, I've spent 30 years studying elephants and being at my field site in Namibia, uh, I see many animals greeting, and it's very important to zebras and uh, jackals and rhino and um, giraffe. Uh, so I go through many different examples of other species and and really how um, these rituals evolved and why they evolved. Uh, you know, greeting many of the greetings are kind of disarming, like an elephant will place their trunk in another one's mouth, which is a huge sign of trust. And two rhinos will sort of gently spar these very dangerous um, horns that they could easily kill each other with. And, um, and even with humans in the early days, a handshake was thought to show that the other person was not holding a weapon. Um, so there are many reasons why greeting is a disarming and trusting behavior. And to see the intensity of, of elephants greeting 
and the purposeful reverence oftentimes. It just is a reminder of the decorum we have in our own greetings where, you know, a simple hello or even looking at your family members in, in the eye and saying good morning to, you know, having to go say, uh, uh, greet the queen, for example. Um, I see that same kind of strata in the elephant world where um, one of my previous books is called Elephant Don, and I talk about how these male elephants will come and greet the Don, which is very similar to a mafioso Don. He's, you know, at the end of the waterhole where it's the best water. And always the dominant individual gets the best water. So the bulls will line up and kind of in trepidation hold their trunk out, place it in his mouth, and then tuck away, lower down the shoulders. And then the next one would walk up, place the trunk in the mouth, and then step away. And the next one, just like greeting, you know, kissing the ring of the mafioso Don, it's really, really striking how similar these uh these rituals are to our own and how they are attached to family politics. You know, the watching elephants play with each other also has an element of politics, like the high ranking um, calf of a high ranking female only plays with calves of other high ranking females. Um, and, and how play actually um, brings families together. You know, if you have a tiff with, someone else and then all but the cousins are all playing or the nieces and nephews are all playing and you're all laughing about what silly thing they're doing it brings people together and and play is a really important tool for innovation um, for creativity for language development so i talk about all of these things and what the origins of the rituals are you know, play rituals, if you watch lion cubs, it becomes immediately obvious their play is all about how to learn how to hunt, you know, tripping the other um, cub litter mate and grabbing their neck and uh, trying to smother them. <laughs> it's all uh, early exaggerated forms of how they would hunt later in life. And um, so, so I go through each ritual and how it evolved and what its importance is to other animals and how it's important to us. Well, as you know, I found your work fascinating from the first time I heard about you. And um, I'll never forget, you know, there's certain things in life, uh, Dr. Caitlin, that people say to you that stay with you. And um, in our first visit, I remember asking you pretty early on in our discussion what you wanted sort of lay people like me to know about elephants. And by chance, do you remember what you said? I'm not sure exactly what I would have said then, but I might have said something like, elephants are just like us and they provide us the opportunity to look in the mirror and think about our humanity because they are so similar. Is that something? <laughs> Is that pretty what much what I remember you saying to the something to the effect of they're just like us. And then, elaborating as you did. And, you know, I've thought about that a lot ever since, um, you know, in my life every day, I interact with um, two types of animals. My wife and I have seven hens. Uh, we oh, call them the dinosaurs because of course they're <laughs> descendants of T-Rexes. Yes. <laughs> and we have three, three rescue cats. And most recently we rescued a kitten 
mm-hmm. who's our uh, out of all of our uh, critters, he's the only boy. So it's me and him, and everybody else is a girl. <laughs> and um, and I think about this pandemic that we've all been through, and and in addition to that, our family has suffered two meaningful losses in a very short period of time. Oh, anyway, it, it, it's been a horrible time, and it's fascinating how the animals are. They know when we're hurting. Yes. You know, with our new rescue cat, our little boy, I don't know who's rescuing who. I'm pretty sure he's rescuing me. (laughs) My rescue dog definitely rescued me, that's for sure. But by rescuing some other, whether it's a person or another animal, uh, you are rescuing yourself. You know, a friend in need is a friend indeed kind of thing. Uh, and, and cats are so amazing because they are the closest to their natural instincts. I mean, they've been domesticated for not as long as dogs, but uh, cats hold their instincts. They act just like lions. I mean, I appreciate lions more and, and domestic cats more by seeing their same behavior in, in lions. It's fascinating. But yeah, the pandemic, our pets are very in tune to you know, I had a bad phone call on Friday, but I didn't think it showed in my voice or um, in my expressions. But my dog the whole time was on the edge of his little dog bed and coming out of his electric blanket because fre- freezing in my house, even though we're in San Diego. Uh, but he was so attentive to me. He could tell something was wrong. And uh, it's, it's so fascinating. I really thought I was hiding it from him, but not purposely. I thought I was doing such a good job <laughs> of managing, but I'm sure hormonally he could tell. <laughs> and so I want to go back to this thing that you said to me then, which you've now repeated, which is that animals at the time I was asking, of course, about elephants, but of course you've studied more than just elephants and any of us who live with a pet have studied that, that uh, critter for quite some time. And so there's this there's this narrative that says human beings are different and at we we behave in ways and we feel ways and we think ways and we conduct ourselves in ways etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, that animals don't and so we create this separation this superiority this we're higher on the food chain we're higher on the intellectual chain or the evolution chain or whatever in a way that creates separation but ever since you said that to me Uh, And I thought about my own life experience with animals. I just thought, well, it kind of seems like bullshit. But I'm curious, like this separation of human and animal, how do you think about it? Well, you know, it's easy for people to do that because we are the only species that evolved language. And as soon as our brains started to really rapidly grow away from our, our great ape cousins... Um, due to tool use, um, the thought is because we had to make more and more involved tools to survive and and be better hunters, we actually learned language in order to explain the steps of making these tools. And then by that language, suddenly we just accelerated uh, away from our the branch on our evolutionary tree. Um, but the thing to remember is that we all came from the same humble beginnings, whether or not we moved in another direction, that other direction allowed us more intellectual capacity, which means that we should 
be cognizant that we are part of this whole world and we are uh, animals that evolved, you know, all mammals evolved from fish. We have great evidence of that. And, um, but, you know, that, that's, that's very disconcerting for many people to think about. Um, but the rituals and social animals should remind us that we all evolved this need for ritual for the same purpose, for courtship, for, for grieving. You know, many social animals grieve just like we do, and there's a reason for it. There's a hormonal process that we need to get through to just deal with the enormous sadness and how to um, come out healthy the other end is to actually acknowledge what you're experiencing and, and move through it. And, and with a, a community and in the pandemic, we that has been a lot of the devastating aspect of not even being able to say goodbye. Um, it's, it's really important. And we tend to put ourselves above other social animals, but we really are not. We, we have a, a biased measure of what's important language being one of them, but we don't recognize uh, other forms of intelligence as being as important. We don't value it as much because we're not good at detecting a magnetic sense, or at least we don't, you know, we're not cognizant of it, or uh, electromagnetic waves. Other senses like ants and bees are really good at detecting phase of the sun and magnetic fields. Um, and we're not. So we think, oh, well, bees can't be that smart because um, their senses are not as valuable as our senses because we're human and so they must be important. <laughs> so everything is human-centric is what I'm trying to say. And uh, we, I, I, I wrote this book to try and bring us back to ground zero. Like, where did we come from? And why do we have all these things in common with other social animals? And there's good reasons for that. And it's a good reminder that we share all of these things and we should not be putting ourselves above them. We should be making decisions about this planet so that we all can live on this planet and, and recognize our similarities rather than saying how much better we are than them. Uh, thank you for that. And if I, if I remember our last conversation, Another big takeaway for me was the depth of feelings, of relationships, the sense of family and tribe, and um, maybe it's not language the way we have language, but if I'm not mistaken, you're the doctor who figured out that, um, uh, that uh, elephants communicate with each other through the ground. Yes. And yes. so... Maybe it's not language, but it, it sure is communication. And so you tell me, but how do you think about the, the differences versus the similarities between us and as you, as you call them, social, other social animals? Well, you know, we, it seems obvious to us that we can get a point across through words. But if you think about it, it's actually much harder to get your points across without words and chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, elephants, uh, dolphins, they're all doing it, and they don't have a language as sophisticated as ours. I mean, they do have, uh, you know, they have vocal communication, 
but it's not nearly as sophisticated and elaborate as what we can convey. But they're doing, they're conveying very complicated um, ideas and behaviors through unspoken rituals and, and through, uh, language, through vocalizations. Uh, and elephants um, also tap into the vibrotactile sense uh, to, to detect vocalizations. And, you know, we have that same ability, um, but, you know, we've got cell phones, <laughs> we've got language and uh, cell phone towers so we can talk long distances, whereas they need to broadcast their signals through the ground in order to get their signal a very long distance. Um, but as mammals, we have the same sensory um, capacity in, in our uh, what's called Pacinian corpuscles, uh, the vibrotactile cells in our hands, feet, lips. Um, and we have a, um, a part of our brain, you know, part of our brain, the auditory cortex processes our auditory signals, but then we have the somatosensory cortex that processes vibrations. And uh, for people who have hearing impairments, they actually have more of their brain dedicated to processing vibrotactile cues by taking over some of the auditory cortex that's just sitting there not being used. The brain is constantly at war with each other for real estate because there's only so much of it. And if you use certain areas of your brain, that is going to dominate. So a person with hearing impairments has a much better vibrotactile sense than I do as a person with normal hearing. So where am I going with this? It, it's talking about how different animals convey their signals. And uh, elephants are able to do that in the ground. And they've perfected that art because they need to. We haven't because we don't need to. We, uh, If we want to talk to someone three miles away, we would pick up the phone or we'd drive there. <laughs> um, and elephants could walk there too, but they are communicating in much larger areas. And they really need to do that because they need to forage across a very large landscape in order to survive. And in doing so, they do not like to be separated from their families and extended families. So they stay in touch by communicating over these longer distances through these vocalizations that also propagate in the ground. So if I get what you're saying, they use their trunk to communicate something and they make a sound that they sort of point into the ground. Correct me here where I'm wrong. And that sound carries over miles and can communicate danger or can communicate. We found a new food or water source or things along those lines. Well, they, they have vocal cords just like we do. So they produce this vocalization in their vocal cords and it is such a, a strong sound. It's uh, created at 120 decibels. So it's like a mini explosion at the sight of the elephant. As the uh, sound propagates through the air, it's also coupling with the ground through this many thousand toned animal. It couples with the ground and also propagates along the surface of the ground at a different velocity than what's uh, being transmitted through the air. And the elephant can take that information, time the difference between the arrival of the airborne signal and the arrival of the seismic signal, kind of like counting the distance between thunder and lightning and knowing how far away the rain is. Elephants, um, they have the capacity to do that. And so their signals are being generated in the vocal cords 
and then uh, propagate through the ground. It's similar to uh, blue whale, to humpback whales, to the mycetes whales that have uh, these very low frequency signals that they can travel long distances through the ocean. And the ocean has what's called the SOFAR channel, which creates a physical environment that kind of sandwiches the sound into this tunnel, which is, that's why it's called the SOFAR channel. And the top of the, the surface of the earth does the same thing. It takes the sound and it channels it through this cylindrical surface. Whereas if you speak, well, as I'm speaking now, my uh, vocalization is spreading out in three dimensions called spherical spreading. And so you lose every, uh, every doubling of distance, you lose six decibels. But in the ground, if you sandwiched into the cylinder, you actually save a lot of energy. So you only lose three decibels for every doubling of distance. And then you can, that conservation of energy allows that signal to, to last longer. So all of these, you know, I talk a little bit about this in my chapter, uh, Spoken Rituals. And um, it, it's something that in the early days when we didn't have cell phones, there's a lot of evidence that we were using similar tricks uh, in order to communicate, you know, there's um, cultures and uh, customs, say the Native Americans uh, sending smoke signals or uh, stomping of feet. Uh, and many cultures have that stomping of feet or playing a very low frequency drum or the talking drums of, of uh, Northern Africa. Um, they have very complicated signals encoded into the drum beats. And so in our early... Uh, early years of not having technology to communicate long distances. These are the, kind, the kinds of techniques that were used, which is very similar uh, to what other social animals are doing that don't have these modern tools. Hmm. Yeah, of course, using drums uh, in almost a Morse code-like way, long before Morse code, of course. Yes, but even to the point of, of uh, being able to communicate uh, let someone from my village is coming to visit you. It's a female and talking about the moon and the sun and how long it will take them to get there. <laughs> All these different things are encoded into the, into the drums. So it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating um, mm. to, to think of, of what kinds of solutions uh, uh, social animals have to communicate acoustically through the air. And from an evolutionary point of view, um, it wasn't really that long ago that we were communicating through the air using drums, much like elephants communicate with uh, using the ground and their loud, loud explosion noises. Yeah, not that long ago, even within this century, these kinds of instruments have been used. And, um, you know, people talk about the didgeridoo um, playing out song lines and how that low frequency instruments played on the ground. Um, I haven't seen a paper to show that they do propagate long distances, but I'd love to do a study on it. <laughs> well, and I bet you, you know, my family's heritage is Scottish and uh, um, those bagpipes could communicate uh, good things or bad, th bad things over very long distances. <laughs> they certainly can. And that, that big airbag is like a vocal sack and some uh, birds use, a very huge um, vocal sac like the Cory Bustard in uh, South Africa, uh, Southern Africa, um, they have this huge air sac that inflates in their throat and then they make a very deep 
again, like an explosion sound uh, when they're trying to attract a mate from very long distances. Um, so yes, the airbag adds a lot. And so the Scottish uh, uh, bagpipes are a perfect <laughs> example. <laughs> Now, rituals um, is so fascinating because, of course, even the basic student of human nature, uh, we realize that w we are comforted and we use rituals, to your point, on the open hand for shaking hands to show that we don't have a weapon uh, or how, you know, most of us like to get up and we do roughly the same thing most mornings and we wind down our days, you know, m mostly the same way and we most of us have dinner at a similar time every night or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then those of us layman's like myself who look to the animal world, you know, our seven hens, they're deeply tied to the sun. So it changes throughout the year. But right now, for example, at about four o'clock, they want dinner and um, they make it very clear that it's time for dinner if we're not on it. <laughs> Yes, yes, my dog does and, that too. <laughs> right, and so animals love these rituals. They love the same things for breakfast and, and so forth. And so what is it about, I don't, is, it a, is it a mammal or a, what is it about being a creature that makes it that we cling to these rituals? Well, rituals are very calming. They're very soothing. They comfort us and, and make us feel uh, connected. They especially group rituals when you're doing something as a group, let's say in a marching band or um, synchronized swimming or singing with your friends, uh, uh, gesticulating with your arms or saying a slogan at a sports game or something to, you know, to cheer your team on. Um, they make you feel included and more bonded to the people that you're with you know, as a writer, I've got these little rituals to get my desk set up and get my mind in order. And I do a little bit of meditation just to get into that space. Um, so throughout the book, I, I mention a lot of examples of, of rituals that people engage in that help them stay connected. Uh, you know, travel rituals, going to a national park or in the spring, I'd sit in my backyard last spring, didn't travel at all, but I felt so enriched by having the for good fortune of having a backyard and being able to watch birds nesting and building their nests on a daily basis and then having chicks and feeding them and just the just being in touch with the timing of the natural world is something that's very soothing and it's actually very healthy for us to be paying attention to seasonality and timing. And, and subconsciously, uh, we, are, we are affected by the, uh, the shortening of days and lengthening of days. And it's even been shown that growth spurts happen in the spring. Uh, and you know other animals engage in spring cleaning rituals just like we do. Uh, so being in tuned with nature helps us process the passing of time in a more healthy way than having anxiety that, oh my gosh, where did all those years go? But just paying attention to nature really helps us um, kind of get in touch with ourselves and what's happening around us. Um, you know, I talk about uh, group rituals and how they evolved for um, 
anthropologists think that group rituals in humans evolved in order to facilitate hunting. So uh, in our early days when we were hunting giant sauce and mammoths to survive, one person could not take down this giant animal. So we had to figure out how to coordinate ourselves and build trust in a group in order to do this very dangerous thing of, of, of hunting a large animal. Uh, after then there were more, um, you know, humans did very well and their populations grew. Then there was this need to identify each group. And so there would be certain rituals that would identify each group, certain sayings, or uh, as soon as religion evol evolved, there would be um, mantras that would be spoken and uh, different elements of community that bring us together and, and self-identify us. Now, those are all positive elements of group rituals that make us feel more bonded to the group. But as we've seen in the last year, group rituals can go down a very dark path where all of these symbols of the colors that you wear or the hat or flags or um, slogans can really lead us down to a, a negative end. And this, what I, what I hope will remind people when they read this group rituals chapter is that we all need something out of group rituals and they're very good to feel included, but it's not good to exclude, look outside your group and think that everyone else is bad. And that's a kind of a maladaptive aspect of ritual that we need to be aware of and rein in and not let that uh, lead us down a dark path. So, and this may be stretching the conversation in a place you don't want to go. And if so, feel free to give me a little nudge under the table, so to speak. But <laughs> on the negative side, it can lead certainly in humans to um, isms of all sorts, racism and sexism and tribalism and the so forth and so forth. And, and it's one thing to go to a football game and cheer on your team and have fun and feel like you're part of a group and do that. And as a human being, you hope that if there's fans of the other team there and our team loses and their team wins, well, you know, we may not be happy, but, you know, we're all going to say, well, didn't we enjoy the game? And, and it's a bummer we lost and congratulations and we're done. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen sometimes at football games. And it yeah. sure as shit doesn't happen around ideologies uh, of one sort or another. And so what is your study of animals and ritual sort of show you in this area of human being behavior in our rituals? Well, understanding what happens. So there's been some recent studies where they showed a group practicing certain rituals and um, there they had a series of questions and more people within the group exhibited negative feelings towards those that were not in their group than within the group. And it's just a measure that as soon as you have inclusivity, you also have exclusivity. And it, it takes a lot of um, responsibility to make sure that those people on the outside are not treated poorly. They're just different. They're following a different path. They've got a different team that they're cheering for. And, you know, one day you might be interested in that team too. So uh, to be so inclusive and you get into these uh, 
ceremony around those, you know, like a hazing kind of mentality that the more you experience together and the more dangerous things you experience together, the more bonded you become. It's called uh, dysphoria instead of euphoria, where, you know, people going off to war, training soldiers, they'll die for each other uh, because they are so bonded. And if we understand these things and the power that group ritual uh, commands over us, then we're more responsible to not let it get out of control. And so uh, when we find ourselves in a, a, you know, one of the things I think about is when I find myself in a group of people, particularly a new group of people, uh-huh. look around and I ask myself about like, who are these people? Who do they seem to be? And I don't know if I, I assume most human beings do this, but it's sort of like that old Sesame street thing, right? I'm, I'm sitting here going, it's one of these things is not like the other. Like, do I fit in or don't I, right? Like, are these quote unquote, my people or are they not my people? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. You have this experience. We all have this experience. Do animals do the same thing? Oh, they do for sure. You know, you just reminded me of, you know, uh, the classic mean girls kind of example where girls do this a lot in high school. Boys do it too. But it's like you gain power from that inclusivity. And the more you can figure out how to create enemies, the stronger you are bonded together. And that's what is really dangerous about group rituals. Now, I, I see this in elephants where the dominant bull doesn't like a certain bull, his competitor. And just through just through body language, and him shifting his shoulders and tossing his head, his followers can tell that he's upset with this newcomer. And they all line up, hold their ears out, hold their shoulders up and look down onto this elephant as it's, as it's walking into the water hole and wants to just get a drink and they're all intimidating him. And then the dominant bull will not let that individual in or he'll send his muscle out there to chase the bull away. <laughs> so they definitely have inclusivity and exclusivity. Um, and, and if you look in the females, in the males, you think, well, why are they doing that? I mean, there's enough water there for everybody. But for females, you can really understand why they do this. Um, it's a desert environment. The family groups are, when they're bigger, they have to uh, move further and further away from water in order to eat. And then there are very few places to drink. So if they don't have access to that water, they're finished. So when two different female um, family groups come in and they didn't time themselves very well, the low ranking family gets chased off. And uh, it's very much an inclusive, exclusive kind of thing, because anyone within the extended family um, would be allowed in. But if it's an aggressive, dominant matriarch of a high-ranking family, uh, she can push those other uh, females out. And and that, that group ritual kind of activity is, you can see, it's, it's like, um, you know, our situation of you throw a lifeboat down and it's only room for five and there's 20 of you who do you pick? 
Do you pick your most immediate family? You know, how do you make that decision? The, the people who share my last name. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, for elephants, the, the ones who are closest in line with the, with the queen. Yeah. Very much like humans in that regard. There's a dominance hierarchy of some sort. There's a fight over resources. Yes. And when the shit goes down over those resources and they get scared, if you're on the lower end of the, the pole, you're going to get the short end of it, so to speak. Yes, yes. And and people don't, researchers don't see that in environments where there's more resources and water is more ubiquitous, you know, where there's rivers or lakes and perennial sources of water. But in our environments, very, very dry, and there's only a very few water holes that the elephants can drink from. So there is a very stiff competition. And the matriarchs are even pushing out the young, lower-ranking females from their own families to keep the family smaller. Now, in other environments, that would be called fission-fusion, where the uh, lower-ranking members might just go off and form their own, become the matriarch of their own little group, and then come back together at the waterhole. But it's all very passive. In, in my situation, in this desert, extremely low-resource environment, it seems very active that they have to push out these low-ranking individuals just to make sure that the family is smaller so that they have more resources when they're traveling through the environment. But that those issues play into uh, group rituals and these coalitions that are formed in order to intimidate other families away from the water. You know, what, one example, uh, I follow a matriarch named Big Mama, and she's got all of her African leaders, female African leaders as her adult females in her group. And she somehow signals to them through body language that she is going to try and disrupt this other group. And she forms this phalanx of adult females and they, she drags her trunk on the ground in a fist and they all march towards the other group and try and push them off. And it's, it's extremely dramatic. Uh, and, and that's an example of how a coordinated effort benefits a group. And that's how you know, group rituals, their greeting ceremonies, and all the different things that they do help bond them and make them a much stronger unit to react very quickly in these, in these particular times where they have to push others away. Much like maybe a group of humans will say that this patch of land is our country, yeah. And uh, you you can't come in unless we say you can come in, right? Yes, yes, it's very much like that. <laughs> hmm. And so, doctor, does that like I think about some of the problems that we that humanity has always faced, some of which have uh, been dramatically and horribly underscored of late. And I, I wonder about sort of the primordial nature of racism. Um, and of sort of uh, human beings not caring for other human beings uh, in maybe the way that some of us would, would like them to. And so are, are these primordial things that we're, are, we're just fighting with each other over resources? Or like, what is the source of some of this, the isms and the bad human behavior? Uh, a lot of it comes down to this idea of group identity and us versus them. And the more bonded you feel to your group, 
oftentimes it makes you feel more negative to those outside your group. You don't understand them. You don't have the same symbols, the same values. Uh, you know, in, in a religious situation, there'd be certain prayers and language and, and norms um, that you'd practice during a religious rite, whereas another religion does not, has something completely different. Or if you're a community group, and you sing certain songs together, you have certain dances and certain mu musical instruments, you know, German music versus Polish music or French music. Those are all should be really good things and culturally identifying behaviors that evolved by being separate groups over many, many years. Um, but in modern times, we've come together and we've learned about all these different cultures and how music and uh, dance and language evolved through these isolated uh, groups as they spread out during uh, diasporas um, and evolving from Africa out into all of these other places. Uh, but now that we come back together, it, we should be celebrating diversity and all of our differences and all of the challenges that we overcame in all of these different environments that made us who we are. And sometimes we celebrate those differences, but sometimes we don't, especially if we have to share with them. Like, wait a second, they're so different from us. We don't understand them. And why do we have to share our land with them? You know, it's... Um, it's very human, but it's also very much an issue for all social animals. Now, you also write about uh, mating rituals. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, there seems to be a lot of fascinating things to learn there. And there's some um, connections, maybe, or learnings about rituals, mating rituals in, in the animal world that connect things to human, in the human world. And so... Um, can we pop the hood on the, on this part of the discussion as well? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, leading up to Valentine's Day, it's kind of fascinating to think of all the different um, behaviors that we engage in to court each other and uh, how there's a hormonal ele element to it and a vocal element, a tactile element, uh, and how courtship evolved really to... Uh, in some species figure out which mate uh, is going to be the most fit. So many bird elaborate courtship rituals in birds and, and feathers and dances and song. And oh my gosh, it's so amazing. And, but many of these rituals are to signal to the female that they're healthy enough to engage in that ridiculous ritual, <laughs> energy uh, sucking ritual. Is, isn't it like learning to play guitar and joining a band? Isn't it sort of the same yeah, that, thing that you're yeah, doing? That's, that's uh, definitely one mechanism to attract a mate. <laughs> Musicians throughout history uh, have done well because there's, there's a strong musical gene in the gene pool. <laughs> so, for example, there's um, different species of birds that the female will watch and usually the females aren't engaging in the ritual. They're just standing there watching. And you think, what is going on in that little bird brain of yours? What are you thinking when this bird is doing these crazy things? Well, apparently she is assessing how fast he can move his legs <laughs> or, you know, how much movement he can make in his wings or how red 
his feathers are uh, uh, the crest on a, a jungle fowl, for example, the red on, you know, you have female, you have hens and not a rooster, but the red uh, skin in many uh, animals during their uh, time of sexual reproduction or, or courtship um, when the female's ovulating, either the female, like a female chimpanzee, will have an inflamed red behind that shows that she's an estrus. <laughs> um, but in, in these um, males that have like the ostrich during the mating season, his, his beak and his shins turn bright pink. And these bright red or pink uh, skin is a sign of high testosterone. And that's supposed to be an honest signal of the fact that they are able to produce that level of testosterone, which would imply that he is healthy and doesn't have disease. This is the uh, theory of why males have all of these secondary sexual characteristics is to show the female that he's healthy. Um, and because there, in many species, there's female choice where she is making the selection of which male to, to mate with. Um, and then, uh, so for females, we also exhibit hormonal uh, uh, signals, but also secondary uh, sexual traits like putting red lipstick on or a man wanting to drive a Porsche. You know, there are these, uh, we also have these secondary sexual characteristics that do attract the other side. So in terms of hormonal, there's been some interesting studies one of them showing female choice where a group of females would be presented with an article of clothing from different kinds of men that have uh, exercised, you know, worked out, and they um, a female would just smell the shirt of that male, or they slept on a pillow. There's uh, several different examples of the study. But what came out of the work is that Females are making selections, mate choices based on their smell. And the smell of that male would be not too similar to her own scent, but not too foreign from her own scent, somewhere in the middle. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the reason for this is uh, it's called MHC compatibility, major histocomplex compatibility, MHC, yes. Uh, that shows you if you are you don't want to mate with your relative, obviously, because there's inbreeding. So mice do this. Many species know their litter mates based on smell. And it's it's really that major histocompatibility complex that they can smell. And we smell it too, which is can be really surprising and maybe a little disturbing um, that we would be making choices like that. And then when the smell is too foreign from your own, then evolutionarily that's thought to be maybe uh, some risk of disease factors, but people do make decisions based on smell and uh, also body language. There's, there's some fun papers showing speed dating anal analyses of uh, how gestures of both a man and female, male and female, will let each other know whether they actually are interested or not. So yeah, I have a whole chapter on uh, unspoken rituals and you know, power postures, uh, you know, a man striding around in the boardroom or a woman. It's very similar to a male elephant in the hormonal state of must. So that gets back to reproduction where 
the male in must advertises himself to all the other males to let them know, you know, don't go near those females because I'm gonna kick you behind. And he has all this ceremonial, elaborate, uh, unspoken rituals where he swings his trunk around, takes, um, rubs it across one temple gland on one side of his head, drags it across his face to the other side, and then flings his trunk out to advertise this must scent, which smells horrific, like rotten onions, <laughs> musty rotten onions. You can smell it when our big male Smokey marches into the uh, water hole. We know it because he, he smells very powerfully. <laughs> so I shouldn't, I shouldn't wear this. Uh, th th this is not a good cologne I should be wearing. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and so s this is why we put on cologne and this is why we yeah. wash and this is why we like certain soaps or hair whatevers or smell matters and uh, the way our mate smells matters. Yes, it does. And, and whether we're conscious of it or not, we're making decisions around that. Uh, and yeah, so I go through many courtship rituals, a, a lot of them bird rituals because they're so dramatic and elaborate, but elephants and uh, lions courting females are, uh, a lioness has to copulate on the order of a thousand times sometimes as that was reported seems a very high number but in order to ovulate she has to copulate and this is true for a number of species um so she has rituals to entice the male because he's exhausted after all of these all of his efforts but she'll keep him on a schedule not to be too inappropriate but i don't feel that bad for him dr caitlin <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's not, you know, it's not a terrible dilemma for many people to think about really, but she's, you know, they have these, the female has this gorgeous tail with a beautiful black tuft on the end of it. And she uses that. She drags it across the male's nose, kind of gives it a tickle and then walks away from him like, okay, come on, let's go again. He's like, oh my God, he gets up and he's been at this all night long. It keeps us up all night. <laughs> It's so loud. <laughs> All right, we are leading up to the, to Valentine's, so I can say that the male lion has a very loud orgasm. <laughs> it's shocking. <laughs> and it's female, shocking. <laughs> it's shocking because it's like, wow, it really seems like this feels good. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly a happy sound he's making. Yeah, very loud. And, and then he rolls and he collapses off of her and she rolls around and rubs on her back, you know, her belly in the air like she's having her equivalent of a cigarette, you know. <laughs> and really what she's doing is trying to get that sperm down. Uh, she's, she's moving it around and then she's getting the next collection. <laughs> she's very busy and it's, it's pretty interesting, all of the different solutions that, uh, different species have for going from courtship to actually succeeding and reproducing and then all of the in-between whether there's parental investment care for the offspring and um, so it's a fun chapter <laughs> <laughs> no doubt now I do want to touch on one thing you've used the term female choice uh, multiple times um, and, and I've heard, and maybe I've heard wrong, uh, of course, you're learned in this, I'm not, that there is some debate as to whether or not human beings are female choice animals or not. And so I'd ask you about sort of 
these major mammals that are that are female choice and whether or not you think human beings are female choice animals or or what are we well that's that's a very good question um you know darwin uses the peacock as an example of uh the fact that these males with these elaborate tails that it's almost impossible to get through the jungle with these huge tails and when they spread them up and shake them for a female it's just you could never have imagined that evolution would come up with this. And there's no way that he could evade a predator with this giant thing trailing behind him, but somehow he does. And so uh, Darwin's theory of, of uh, sexual selection uh, shows us that these males can survive because the females are choosing them. And so they're the ones that, that get into the next generation because their genes are being passed on because the females are selecting them uh, the, with these elaborate tails where the females are just like, you know, don't have that tail. And, and it, it explains why the male is not this drab brown bird. <laughs> so with that in mind, there are some primates where the males overpower the females and it's hard to talk about female choice in some species where um, she would just be dominated. Like in elephants, uh, if there was not a must bull around, a female might get attacked. Like you've seen mallard ducks. It's horrible to watch because the female's just getting mobbed and, uh, you know, copulation from all of these different males. But in elephants, the must bull will chase all of those males away. So a female actually looks for a must male to protect her from that. And so that's, you know, it's another subtle element of this where if you think about humans, um, you know, there's many examples of courtship and, and males courting females throughout history. Uh, and if we didn't have that, you know, if, if there was no female choice involved, you wouldn't have courtship, they wouldn't bother. So it, it, it's complicated, but we are driven by female choice. And because we can intellectualize things and and consider different options. Men are constantly trying to impress women and, you know, with jewelry or with cars or many material items, you know, the shiny object uh, uh, versus, uh, you know, the male would have his shiny object secondary uh, sexual characters like a bower bird who makes a be beautiful piece of art for a female to come and inspect. And she'll sort of decide, hmm, is this beautiful piece of art good enough? Or I'll go and look at the next guy's beautiful piece of art. <laughs> Whereas women would uh, actually be more interested in men during when, when they're cycling. And this has been studied subconsciously uh, when females are ovulating, they actually put on more lipstick, pay more attention, put on some perfume and go out looking for a date. And so there's a lot of things that go on in our minds that we're not realizing. And the more we can recognize what's happening, the better control we have over our choices and, uh, and how to make good choices. Yes. So it would, I just want to put a fine point on it. You think human beings are, for the most part, a fem the female chooses the mate species. Yes, and except for arranged marriages and things like that. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, that seems like the way it is to me, but uh, I'm just a layman. 
Um, but it, it, as a side note, it, there seem and this is uh, there's no data associated with this. Just my personal life experience. A disproportionate number of the good men that I know met a spectacular woman at a somewhat younger age in their early adulthood. And they realized that if they didn't get their shit together, they weren't going to be able to keep this incredible woman. And so they had to get their shit together and finish their education or get a good job or stop being this or that, that in other words, in our world, it just seems like there's a lot of men who have to get their shit together because otherwise they're not going to be able to keep the woman that they really want to keep. <laughs> but that's just my own personal well, yes. experience. I mean, I mean, subconsciously or consciously, we're thinking, how is that man going to provide? You know, uh, up until as late as the 50s, you know, females uh, have ten- men tend to be the breadwinners and females at home. And thank goodness that uh, stereotype has been broken, and it's really uh, how are both members of the couple going to provide um, the strongest, uh, bring to you know, come to the table with the strongest elements. And if your partner has a problem with gambling or drinking or something else, they're going to be bringing instability to the table and there's going to be a lot of heartbreak surrounding instability. So if that one partner recognizes that they can, they will attract their mate by being the strongest possible person they can be, then the resources they bring to the table are stability, whether it's economic stability or just mental stability, uh, they have something to offer the relationship and building on that. And that's what people, that's what is the most important thing is to have a stable, strong relationship, and then you can deal with any elements of uh, challenges from the outside. And many of these uh, species of animals have deep, deep uh, relationships with their, for lack of a better term, spouse. Um, uh, Is that not the case? Oh, there's some animals that mate for life, some birds, the blue crane, uh, the bald eagle, many animals do. And it's, it, it could seem surprising, um, and yet, well, why would it be surprising? You're investing all of this energy in a relationship and finding a good relationship and say you have you know, successful nesting with this one individual and it's kind of remarkable, but uh, also uh, inspiring. I kind of like making a nest with this person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the blue-footed booby showing their their blue feet. They both court each other by standing and showing each other their gorgeous iridescent powder blue feet, which is part of their <laughs> courtship dance. <laughs> I'm going to have to find that on YouTube, Dr. Hell Kate. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Now, clearly, I could talk to you for centuries about this. I just love your field of uh, work and how accessible you make it to to laymans like me. Are, are there other? Is there anything else you won't really want to touch on um, before we wrap up? Ah, uh, just that I hope people will be inspired to read Wild Rituals, and um, it was an inspiring journey for me. And I, I hope that I can provide uh, help people connect better with themselves uh, and others and the natural world around them. Well, you spent a career doing that. Also, maybe if I could ask you one more question, you know, as somebody who spent their professional life 
in this area, this book was clearly a, a passion project for you. Was there anything in your work for this book that you found surprising or caught you off guard in any way? A number of things. You know, I, when I set out to write this book, I knew that there were all of these similarities between us and other social animals, but just learning the depth to how similar we are uh, was fascinating, especially um, learning about grief in other animals and how, how say, a primate mother, a chimp mother who had a baby die or had a stillbirth, they would carry this baby with them. Uh, sometimes for the one example was weeks. And then the studies that show that the hormonal benefits of of just carrying as, as much as you needed to, and then you move on. And that physical carrying was, was really important. And you know, I, I learned about these studies of uh, six different cultures of humans and how it wasn't really a practice for parents to visit with their stillborn babies. And there was a group of parents that got together and showed how important it was for people who wanted to um, see or have some sort of remembrance from their baby and and just the emotional processing that they, the journey they went through of grief and coming out the other side was so important that I thought, wow, if more people realized how important to embark on that journey, to be brave enough to embark on a journey of grief, how much better off you and those loved ones around you will be for doing it and celebrate that life rather than holding all of the, that sadness inside. And to see how other species do that as well was really striking. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. There's a learning there. I, um, my father, Bruce, taught me how to deal with uh, grief and dying at a very young age when my grandfather uh, was dying, uh, my mother's father, actually. But he, he made it clear to me, I was about 16, that my, my granddad was dying and that I, I needed to spend some time with him and so forth. And he did it in a very wise way. And, and, and I did. And it, it, and so I was able to, um, if you will, complete life with my grandfather as a teenager. And I've been able to do that many times since. And, and once very recently with somebody I loved uh, tremendously. And uh, I remember when the hospice nurses were around doctor, they said, you know, it's, it's very unusual to see, what's happening here because we in this case um the last seven days of michael's life he was here with us and we cared for him and um yeah i think putting people in a hospital or some kind of a care facility and sort of letting them die by themselves is a very bizarre and dare i say inhuman and maybe in in i don't know i don't know what we call it in animal <laughs> Uh, yeah. If animals won't do that, then then why will we? Yeah, I, and the pandemic has just made that so much more horrific that we can't even see each other through this. And oof, yeah, it's it's devastating. Yeah, we need to be with each other at those moments. Yeah, definitely. Yes, doctor. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, this was really great, fun conversation. I really appreciate you. Uh, having me on your show and 
love talking through wild rituals and and other things. <laughs> well, and I'm so glad you came came back, and you're welcome back anytime. I think uh, not only are you a gift to animals, but you're a gift to humanity as well, Dr. Kaylin. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, there she is, the legendary Dr. Caitlin O'Connell. And uh, I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you have an animal lover in your life or just somebody who you think will be as stoked to hear this conversation as much as I am, why not uh, share it with them right now? And if by chance you're not subscribed to this podcast on your podcast player, of uh, choice, why not hit that subscribe button right now? To succeed today, we all need every advantage that we can get. And that's where uh, NetSuite by Oracle comes in. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, allowing you to manage every penny in your business with precision. Now, businesses running NetSuite have reported that their cost savings are 50% or more over the cost of running old legacy on-premise systems. And that's because NetSuite eliminates costly upgrades, expensive infrastructure, and onerous maintenance. With NetSuite, you get built-in dashboards and reporting on every element of your business from finance, sales, service, and more. Visit netsuite.com different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com different. And in challenging times, legendary organizations turn data into doing. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Splunk is a scalable and massively reliable data platform for investigating, monitoring, analyzing, and acting on your data. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And my friends at Atranet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out, atre.net today. My friends at bottleneck.online are the leading distant assistant. If you need a legendary assistant, a person using technology to help you get more stuff done who's nowhere near you, visit bottleneck.online today. My friends at Spiro.ai are going to help you close more business. And who doesn't want to do that with proactive relationship management powered by machine learning and our artificial intelligence. That's S-P-I-R-O.ai. And my friends at Crash.co are here to help you Crash your career. Send video pitches and get higher faster. You can burn your resume and do something different at crash.co today. All right. We would like to thank our guest today, the legendary Caitlin O'Connell. She's incredible. Dr. O'Connell's new book is out. Check it out. It's called Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connection, Community, and Ourselves. Wild Rituals, wherever you get legendary books. Um, also want to uh, give a special shout out to Chelsea Carter for helping to make today's episode happen. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Uh, visit Lockhead.com. And uh, while you're there, subscribe to our brand new newsletter, Category Pirates. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And they have been making a difference around entrepreneurship personal empowerment and financial capabilities and, and education in uh, underserved parts of our country for over 10 years now. Visit the number one lifefullylive.org and uh, why not make a donation and make a difference? And while you're thinking about making a donation, 
uh, please don't forget that uh, our people need our help today. So if you can dig into your wallet and help One Life Fully Live, food banks, homeless shelters, faith-based organizations, or anyone else doing good work at this time, now's the time to make a difference if you can. All right, this Oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by uh, living legend, living podcast legend, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Share notes, uh, sh- show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to listen to Blue Rodeo. George Carlin was right. Wear your mask. Call your mother, and don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Uh, Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please uh, stay legendary, stay healthy, take good care of each other, and until we're together again, follow your difference.